The following audio is from First Baptist Church of Conyers. More information about First Baptist Conyers is available at firstconyers.com. Uh, go ahead and take your Bibles and turn with me to Acts chapter 28. It's kind of a bittersweet. We're going to conclude the book of Acts as we've been going through chapter by chapter for several months now. But let me start by asking you this question. If it were not a matter of money or time or health maybe, is there anywhere that you have always wanted to go like your fantasy trip? If, if you had all the money and didn't have to worry about that, you had the time off from work or maybe away from responsibility or time out of school. By the way, kids, Mark Twain said, never let school interfere with your education. So go back home and tell that to your parents, okay? But don't tell them I said that. But if, if there were no limitations, where would you want to go in all of the world? There were a couple of places that came to my mind in my life. I, I've always, well, most recently, I, I really want to go to Jerusalem. I'd love to go there to Jerusalem and see the places where Jesus walked, and I've heard so many good things about it. But the other place I want to go, it's kind of this bucket list place. I want to go to the Grand Canyon in an RV and spend a couple of weeks there just relaxing. I want the family to join me. I'm going to put the grandkids on a plane because I don't want to drive across country with them in the RV and get there and just enjoy that time. And maybe you think of somewhere you wanted to go. You know, the Apostle Paul had a place that he desperately wanted to get to, and that was the city of Rome. It's recorded in the scriptures that, that there were times that Paul desired to go to Rome and depending on what translation, we know that it's more than one time, some say three, three different times Paul in his life set out to go to Rome, but God in his providence decided, you know, it's not time for you to go to Rome. Well, here towards the end of Paul's life, he finally gets the opportunity to go to Rome. Now, he goes there because he's under arrest. By the way, be careful how you desire to get where you want to go. But he gets there to Rome. He had said in Acts chapter 21, as we looked at that, almost in an emphatic way, just, man, I must go to Rome. It was about 15 years earlier that he had heard that there were a group of believers in Rome. The gospel had made it there from Jerusalem to Rome, and there had been people who had received Christ. A church was forming there, and so he desired to go there, but he couldn't get there, so he writes that little light-hearted book, the book of Romans. If you haven't read the book of Romans, you're not laughing, but if you've read it, you'd, he, he writes this theological discourse to the church there in Rome. Well, now he gets his opportunity to go to Rome, but it's under house arrest. We'd seen a couple of weeks ago, I think last week in Acts chapter 26, when he was there before the governor and Festus is there and it, he's examined and the Romans decide, you know what, these charges that the Jews have brought against Paul are really, there's just nothing there. Why are you wasting our time of wanting us to try Paul, let alone wanting to see him put to death. There's just nothing there. But Paul had made an appeal because he was a Roman citizen. He had the right to be heard by Caesar. And so he appeals, and because he had appealed, the Romans had no choice but to send him to Rome. And, 
As you read Acts chapter 27 and the first part of Acts chapter 28 there, it was quite an eventful journey that Paul sets out. He sets out by ocean and there's all kinds of catastrophe that takes place. There's storms that drive them back and then there's this major storm that causes them to be shipwrecked on an island. When they're there on the island, they're waiting for winter to pass and there's an event that takes place where they're building a fire and out of the wood that's there as Paul is putting wood on the fire, a viper, not a gardener, not a garden snake, but a viper comes out and it latches onto Paul's hand and it bites him and the natives that are there saying, you know what, this man must be a criminal because God's punishing him now. And then all of a sudden they waited several hours. Can you imagine him sitting there waiting, just waiting for Paul to die? When's it going to happen? But he doesn't. God intervenes miraculously and in all of God's plan, he brings Paul to Rome, regardless of what circumstances may have come about that would have prevented him from getting there to Rome. A couple of quick points about this. I don't know where you are in your life this morning. I don't know what circumstances all of you are facing. I don't know what plans maybe that you have in your heart that you believe God's placed there, purpose in your life. But can I encourage you with this? No matter what is taking place in your life, if God has purposed something in your life, this story alone tells us that there is absolutely nothing that can come in that can thwart the plan of God in your life and in my life. Aren't you glad for that? Whether it be natural events or man-made events, God will ultimately fulfill His plan and His purposes in your life. And so we pick up here in Acts chapter 28, where finally Paul is there in Rome, and which was his custom, he always went to the Jew first. Remember, Paul is a Jew. He, he started in Jerusalem when the early church was born, when the Holy Spirit of God had, had poured out there on those early believers, and the church was growing. And if you remember, Paul was a Jew of Jews. He was a Pharisee, and they saw these Christians as heretics. Paul begins his life there in Jerusalem persecuting Christians. And in his journey of going around the countryside to persecute Christians, he meets the risen Christ on the road to Damascus. And God, by His grace, opens Paul's eyes. And Paul recognizes that just, this is just not a man Jesus, but he is actually the risen, resurrected Christ, the Messiah, the one who was promised, who had gone to a cross, had died on a cross, shed His blood, been buried and raised again to the third day. And he meets Paul there, and Paul's life is radically transformed. So Paul, through all this journey, now finally makes his way to Rome. And as he gets there, he looks for Jews, not Christians, but Jews, because he had such a desire that his brethren would hear, in fact, that this Jesus was the Messiah. He had a hope for Israel. And so he gathers them there together and explains why he has been brought there to Jerusalem and these Jews that are there say, you know what, Paul, we haven't heard anything about this, but we're interested to hear what you have to say about this person, Jesus, because we've heard of this sect, this Christian sect, and we want to know more of what's happening. And so we pick up here in verse 23 of the event that we want to talk about this morning. Verse 23, Luke tells us this, when they had, then, when they had an appointed day for him, 
In other words, Paul had a schedule where he appointed a day, a meeting, so that he might meet with these Jews. They came to him at his lodging in great numbers. And then from morning till evening, Paul expounded to them, testifying to the kingdom of God and trying to convince them about Jesus, both from the law of Moses and from the prophets. I find it interesting in that when Paul gets there with these Jewish leaders, he had one thing on his mind, one thing on his heart. And Luke tells us from morning till evening, he began to converse with them about Jesus. Can you imagine somebody conversing with you about Jesus from morning till evening before you came to know Christ? You know, the other interesting thing is that that in that system, when one was chained in a Roman guard, there would always be a Roman guard that was there chained to the prisoner, even in a situation like Paul where he was under house arrest. And every six hours, there was a changing of the guard. Can you imagine being chained to the Apostle Paul? And as he's testifying, he's sharing with these Jews for six hours. That Roman guard is there and he's hearing over and over and over the testimony of Jesus. And in the book of Philippians, Paul records that there were some that came to know Christ in this circumstance. It makes me think, if I had been Paul, I would have been bemongering the fact that I was chained to a Roman guard. But Paul realized that God had put him in chains there so that this Roman guard might be able to hear of the good news of Christ and come to faith in Christ. Isn't it amazing? So he's there. Now notice what Luke says, that he was there from morning to evening expounding to them, explaining to them, and testifying to the kingdom of God. Now, that's an important statement. To those Jews, they would have understood immediately what Paul was talking about when he was testifying to the kingdom of God. Because in all of the revelation through the Old Testament of Scripture, the prophets spoke of this coming kingdom of God where God would establish His kingdom. Moses spoke of it. All of the prophets spoke of it. And they looked forward to this one who would be Messiah, who would come and establish God's kingdom. John the Baptist, if you remember, when he came on the scene, he came declaring what? The kingdom of God. Jesus declared the kingdom of God and testified that in his coming, the kingdom was now present. But they missed it in Jesus. For you see, they rejected Jesus. They were looking for a king that hopefully would be a political figure that would overthrow the government of Rome. That would free the Jerusalem, the Jews, from captivity or suppression of the Roman government. That would relieve, give them relief from the pressures and the taxes and all of that and the suppression by the Roman government. You see, they were looking for a different kind of king. Jesus came, though, and he said, I came that I might reveal to you the Father. That if you've seen me, then you have seen whom? You've seen the Father. And Jesus had come so that he might deliver them, but deliver them in a very different way. 
You see, Jesus' primary purpose in coming was so that he might deliver you and I and those hearing that at the time, deliver them from the dominion of darkness, the chains of sin that so bind us. Deliver us from having no hope of eternity except being separated from God by all of eternity because, let's face it, we are all utterly sinful. They were looking for a political answer. They were looking for a governmental answer. And can I say this? We have a country looking for a political answer, don't we? We have a country looking for a governmental answer. But it will never come in that way. Jesus has come, and He is the only answer for the freedom of man from the bondage of sin. And Jesus alone can transform a culture and a community by the gospel. Amen? And so Jesus comes. Jesus also says, now the kingdom of God, for those who have been born again, the kingdom of God resides in our hearts. And so he testifies to them. He, he tries to convince them to give reason through the Old Testament and the prophets. Remember in Paul's day, he didn't have the privilege that you and I have of the New Testament writings. All he had was the Old Testament. But without an understanding of the Old Testament, it's impossible for us to completely understand the fulfillment in the New Testament. And the Old Testament is very vital, even back to the time before, but especially when God delivered the children of Israel out of captivity in Egypt. Do you remember? This is just as the law was going to be given to the children of Israel as God leads them out. Remember that last plague that God had said He was going to bring on the nation of Israel? The final plague that would cause Pharaoh to let the people of God go? That there was going to be a death angel that would be sent over the land of Egypt and any household not having on the doorpost above their door the blood of a pure lamb sprinkled above the doorpost. When that Passover, that death angel came, if the blood was not there, the firstborn in that house would die. But when it saw the blood, it would pass over and it was a prefiguring, it was a foreshadowing of what the blood of Jesus could do. You see, sin cause death to enter, but only by the blood is there life here in Everaster. Amen? Amen? As Moses was given the law there on Mount Sinai, Paul later tells us that the law was given not so that we might have the expectation of fulfilling the law, because if you've ever read the law, you realize that there's so much there, there's no way any of us could ever fulfill the law. But the law was given so that it might show the, right, the absolute righteous requirements of a holy God for those of us, all of us, who had been infected by sin in order for us to have fellowship with God. The law showed us that there's no way to have it. The demonstration of that was through his son Jesus, where he spread his blood, shed his blood as a sin offering for us. The prophets testified to this one coming. Do you realize and recognize this, that as the prophets testified of this Messiah that would come, 
There are over 340 Old Testament prophecies concerning the birth, death, and resurrection of Christ that were fulfilled years ago, long years before Jesus ever went to the cross. Can you imagine that? 341. Mathematicians tell us that in order for one man to fulfill 10 of those prophecies, just one man, to the exactness that were fulfilled in Christ, that it's, the odds are greater in 10 to 7 of any 10 of those being fulfilled, let alone 341 of them. Only God could do that. And so Moses, the prophets, they testify of this one from the kingdom of the kingdom of God. I'm reminded of what the writer in the book of Hebrews says in Hebrews chapter 1, verses 1 and 2. He says, Long ago, at many times and in many ways, God spoke to us, spoke to our fathers by the prophets. But in these last days, He has spoken to us by His Son, whom He appointed the heir of all things, through whom also He created the world. See, God has spoken to us through His Son, Jesus. God's speaking to us today through His Son. Now, notice in verses 24 and 25, after He had begun to lay all this out, trying to convince them about Jesus, in verse 24 it says, And some were convinced by what He said, but others disbelieved. Then in verse 25, And disagreeing among themselves, they departed after Paul had made one statement that the Holy Spirit was right in saying to our fathers through Isaiah the prophet. And then he goes on to quote. Notice there were two responses to the gospel. Same two that you and I will experience any time we begin to share our story with someone of how we came to know Christ. And maybe if we get a little bit beyond just sharing our story, but begin to share the gospel with them. Individuals will be left with one or two choices, either to receive or to reject. Now notice he says some were convinced, not just convinced in a head knowledge way. You see, one can be convinced of the facts of Jesus, but never place their trust in Him. I remember years ago, probably in 1986, 87 maybe, there was a young man that I worked with at a company called Mayor Electric, Chad. And his name was Skeeter Davis. Do you remember Skeeter? Can you imagine being called Skeeter? <laughs> Skeeter. Skeeter had a pretty interesting story. He's the one and only guy in the history of the state of Georgia to fall off the face of Stone Mountain and survive. Can you imagine that? Isn't that true, Chad? Every bone in his face broken. So one day Skeeter and I are having conversation and, and God opened an opportunity that I might be able to share with Skeeter my story of how I'd come to know Christ and Skeeter was very much in the same place I was before I knew Christ, just doing everything under the sun and none of it would glorify God. And so I'm beginning to share my story with Skeeter and I shared with him everything I know about 
the gospel for a couple of hours we had this conversation and at the end of it I'm, I'm like Skeeter man do you, do you hear all this do you agree with all this and Skeeter nods his head he's like yeah man that's cool I love that I'm, and so I thought okay now's the time to bridge that gap Skeeter understands it he believes it cognitively and so I threw the question out there Skeeter are you ready to trust Christ today for the forgiveness of your sin and Skeeter looks at me and goes no man I have no idea if Skeeter ever came to know Christ. The only thing I know is my only responsibility, your responsibility, is to share with them it's the Holy Spirit's power to save. Now, whether Skeeter came to know Christ or not, it's a vivid picture. That one can even be in church their whole life. And they can say amen to the facts. They can agree in that sense that yes, what you're saying is right. But never cross over from that being convinced that it's true to placing their trust and faith in what Christ has done for them. It's what Jesus called being born again. That one must be born again. Now notice what he says here. In verses 26 to 28, Paul quotes what the prophet Isaiah said in Acts chapter 6. You remember that scene in, 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 in Isaiah chapter 6 where Isaiah is caught up there to the throne room of heaven and the angels are declaring the glory of the Lord and they're, they're flying around and they're singing their praise and Isaiah is in the presence of God and he realizes, man, I'm a sinner, I'm a man of unclean lips. And he overhears God saying in the throne room, who shall go with me? And Isaiah says, I'll go. And then these words come to Isaiah. Verse 26, he says, Go to this people and say, You will indeed hear, but never understand. You will indeed see, but you will never perceive. That's kind of an idiom, if you will, to think that, you know, we, we can hear, but never understand. Sandy says, Are you listening to me? Yes. No, you're not. I heard everything you said. And I can even quote it back, but she realizes you're not understanding, right? Hearing, but not understanding. Seeing, but never perceiving. The best way to demonstrate that is if you can imagine in your mind that up here on the wall, there's a 5,000-piece puzzle. And you see all the pieces there, and you know somehow or another they fit together in a picture. But trying to connect the dots, trying to connect the pieces to see clearly what the picture is, you just don't see. And so God's saying, listen, there are those that are forever hearing, but they're never perceiving. They're nodding amen, but they're never perceiving. They're seeing, but they're never understanding. And then he gives a reason why. Look what he says in the next verse, verse 27. For this people's heart has grown dull. Another word that could be used there for the heart being dull is the heart being calloused. Yesterday as we had, and today as we have this spring-like weather, I, I can't wait to get out in the yard. And I thought about my hands. I thought, you know, I haven't been out in the yard working since August or September, and my hands have gotten pretty tender. And because I'm stubborn and I won't wear gloves, I know what's going to happen the first time I get out with my rake. You know what's going to happen. I'm going to have blisters all over my hands. And what made me think of 
this difference between a calloused heart and a tender heart is that the tender heart feels. The tender heart hears. But the calloused heart doesn't feel. Why? Because it's been grown over and over and over and it's become dull. And the application for you and I is whether we are believers or unbelievers. For the unbeliever, it's got to be that first penetration. But you know what I'm reminded as a believer, it's so easy for my heart to get calloused. When I'm reading the things in Scripture that once used to just really spark me, I kind of read over them as though, yeah, I've been there, done that, bought the t-shirt. Or maybe I'm hearing the word talk, and I say, yeah, I, I know that. Or maybe there's a worship song sung that once we used to bear witness to the truth of it, and just, man, we couldn't contain ourselves, the glory of God. Now it's kind of become rote. You see, the warning for me in this is, man, don't let your heart become dull, J-Mo. Don't let your heart be calloused. Because I want to hear, and I want to see what the Lord has to say. Now notice he says in here, it, they, they, their heart has grown dull, and with their ears they can barely hear, with their eyes they have closed, closed, lest they should see with their hearts and hear with their ears and understand with their heart. And then he says this, and turn, and I would heal them. You know what I found? The only response when I recognize I have a calloused heart and my heart's not tender is to turn. Because it's always an indication in my life that there is something there that I need to repent of. And to turn. Somebody wrote in response to this and these Jews at this time, as, as not only Isaiah was quoting this, but here where Paul is quoting it there to him in Rome. He says, their hearts were resistant to the word of God. They have allowed themselves to become deaf and blind for fear that they might hear and see the disturbing Word of God. Can I be honest with you? Sometimes when I'm reading Scripture, it's disturbing. Everybody else with me on that? It's that work that the Holy Spirit of God does through the Word of God, and it's disturbing. But notice what he says in this quote. They, they're, it's disturbing the Word of God, and so they don't recognize that they will receive healing from God. You see, sometimes before healing can take place, take place there has to be pain first. It's kind of like when Mama was going to whip me. It's going to hurt you. It's going to hurt me a whole lot more than it hurts you. And I'm like, she lied, right? And somehow, in some way, there was that healing that came through that correction and it may have been painful at the time but boy it was good in the end I can remember when we would discipline our kids you know you you bring that I remember to the time Sandy was telling Noah that if she didn't love him by the way I get to see Noah today I'm so excited she's telling Noah I love I love you and because I love you I've got to I've got to spank you, and he'd call it paint me, don't paint me, you know. 
One day he looks at her and he says, Mama, please don't love me so much. <laughs> it's that correction, that discipline. We need it in our lives. Why? Because there's healing from that. It's painful to hear and accept, but at the time, it wounds in order to heal. Here's, here's the warning for us, though, that once a person deliberately refuses the Word of God, there comes a point when he is deprived of the capacity to receive it. You see, mark it down. The, the more times that I'm confronted with the Word of God and the more times I reject it, it's almost like there are more and more layers of callus that build up there and it almost can become impossible for me to receive it. And unfortunately, sometimes God has to allow severe consequences in our life so that we finally we get it. It's a stern warning to those who trifle with the gospel, says Howard Marshall. The writer in the book of Hebrews explained the word of God this way. He says, for the word of God is living and it is active. In other words, it's not just black ink on white paper, but it has its effect. It's God's Word. And it's sharper than a two-edged sword, piercing to the division of soul and spirit. He illustrates of joints and marrow and discerning the thoughts and intentions of the heart. I need the Word of God in my life every single day. You need the Word of God in your life every single day that we might pray and ask God, God, work through your Word because I'm incapable of discerning my motives. We're guilty sometimes to say, man, you know my motives. My motives are right. No, we don't. Jesus said the heart is wicked and deceitful above all things. Who can know it? See, I need the Word. You need the Word. Dividing soul and spirit, when we see this word soul, most often in the New Testament in particular, it deals with our minds, our emotions, and our will. And how many of us realize that our mind doesn't become born again? Our emotions don't become born again. And our will doesn't become born again, right? Our spirit becomes born again. And in our soul, or we might say in our flesh, there are these old patterns that we had before we came to know Christ. We looked at the world differently. We had these patterns. Our emotions responded differently in life circumstances and situation. But it's the Word of God that helps us discern. And it says, where you used to respond this way, now... The Word tells me to respond this way. Or somebody offended me. It used to be that I responded with an, with an emotion of anger. And if they offended me, doggone it, they hurt me this bad, I'm going to do what? I'm going to hurt them that bad. Y'all get the picture? You see, it's the Word of God. We've got to have that. James describes the Word of God as, as a mirror, that when we look into the mirror, it's a reflection of who we are. I read this quote this last week, and I, I put it on a PowerPoint. I, I love this. There's a spiritual mirror that we can look into that will show us who we are. Next one. Next one. Somebody wake Ronnie up. Don't have it. Okay, listen to the quote. There is a spiritual mirror that we can look into that will show us 
who we are, and that mirror is called the Word of God. Now, there are two ways that we can approach this mirror. I have a tendency to approach the mirror, which in one way is a good thing, because I, 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 want, I want to be right in my fellowship with God. But I tend to always focus on the negative, and I'm reminded that there are positives in the Scriptures as well. You see, the negative, I know I'm a dirty, rotten sinner, right? But I often forget the other things that the Word of God tells me that I am because now I'm in relationship to Christ. It's best summed in that old song, I once was lost, but now I'm... I was blind, but now I... You see, the Word of God is a reflection of who we are now in Christ that we've experienced as grace. It's a reflection that we experience His mercy on a daily basis. It's a reflection that, yes, once I was separated from God for my sin, but now since I've placed my trust in Christ, the Bible tells me that I am justified in His presence. In other words, God looks at you and He looks at me and He says, it is just as if you'd never sinned. Where once I was completely unrighteous and so were you. That now that we've trusted Christ, He has changed us to where the Bible says that now we are the righteousness of God in Christ. Thank you. Somebody else put your hands together. If that doesn't thrill your thriller, you're dead. You see, so often I have the idea that I'm unloved. But when I look in the Scripture, I realize that I am abundantly loved, and so are you. While others may reject me for outward, shallow reasons, you and I have a Father who loves us unconditionally. While I know I'm not where I want to be, I realize and recognize as I read the Scripture, He has set me apart unto Him so that I'm holy. In other words, I'm sanctified by Him. And He is determined to work in me. He is predestined. That means He has foreordained. He's predestined you and I to become the likeness of Christ. Isn't that good stuff? See, our prayer would be, God, don't let our hearts grow dull. Luke kind of concludes this book in a, in a peculiar way. It ends here after Acts chapter 28. While Paul's still there in prison under house arrest, and Luke doesn't tell us the rest of the story. Don't just sit there going, okay, now what happened? Well, we know during this time that Paul was in prison there under house, house arrest. He, he wrote the book of Philippians. He wrote the, the book of Colossians. He wrote the, the letter of Ephesians. He wrote the letter to Philemon, who, by the way, he led his slave Onesimus to Christ while he's here in house arrest in Rome. But then, as best as we can tell from early historians, Paul was released at this point, and 
for about two more years, he had the opportunity to travel to different places, continuing to spread the gospel. But two years later, he was arrested, and this time he wasn't placed under house arrest. He was placed in a real Roman prison, chained to a big Roman guard. And Paul realized that while the last time he was in prison, it was because of false accusation. Now he knew that he was in prison because he was being persecuted by the state of Rome because he was propagating the gospel of Jesus Christ. And it's there when he writes that last letter to Timothy, 2 Timothy. Where in the first house arrest, John Mark was there, Luke was there, Timothy was there, a guy named Demas was there, and there are several others that are listed there in Acts chapter 28. They were there with Paul while he was in house arrest. But now he's in Rome again the next time, and he's literally in chains, and he knows that he's going to death. And he writes, and he says, everybody's deserted me. There's nobody here. And I thought all of these lives that Paul affected, all of, all of the ones that he loved throughout the world, and here he is in his very last days, and it says, everybody's rejecting me. I'm here by myself. Timothy, when you come, I hope you're coming, would you bring me my cloak? Because winter is coming and it's cold here in this prison. You see, they didn't get three squares and a nice blanket then. He says, and Timothy, by the way, will you please bring me the parchments? Bring me the scriptures. I, I, I want the scriptures. Here he, he's on his end. He wants the scriptures. History tells us that soon after that time that he wrote 2 Timothy, he did meet his death and he was beheaded. And I think the reason Luke kind of ends it right here. It's because he wants us to get the picture that Paul was not in this thing for his own glory. Paul didn't do this Christian thing because it was vogue. Paul didn't risk his life and go to all kinds of perils so that others could hear the message so he could have a monument erected to him. Paul did it because his life had been radically changed and transformed by the living, resurrected Jesus. And folks, that's why we're in it. You're here this morning, you've been born again, you know your life's been transformed. And, and Luke encourages us that even in this, that at the end of Paul's life, that it's a reminder to us that throughout all generations to come, that God, who is the same yesterday, today, and forever, as he was faithful to Paul and the message of the gospel, he will be faithful to the very end until he returns again. You see, he just desires for you and I to get in the game with him. Not for ourselves, but for who? Him. Thank you for listening to audio from First Baptist Church of Conyers, located in Conyers, Georgia. For more information about First Baptist Conyers, please visit us online at firstconyers.com.